At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. I'm he, and this is a bit of a milestone. This is our 400th podcast. We began many years ago and, and have kept the pace up to reach 400, and I've selected a very fine guest to have the honor of being Mr. 400. I've known this gentleman for decades, and he's truly remarkable. His name is Ray Fournier. Now, Ray's been blind since birth, but that has not kept him from achieving his dreams and goals, creating a successful career in audio production and sound management. We're going to share some stories, Ray and I, about him doing sound for the Beatles, Eric Clapton, hanging out at a little muddy place called Woodstock, and we'll touch on so many projects that Ray has been involved in. He's a creative force with a great sense of humor and a love for his industry, and boy, is he adept at it. So settle back, relax, and enjoy a conversation between two old friends as Ray Fournier joins me for podcast number 400 as we get ready to go on mic. I think I'd like to start at the beginning, which is a great place to start, with you well, growing... I had a mother. Yeah. <laughs> you were amazing. You weren't just spawned from uh, sheer nothingness. No, 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 no. All right. Where did you grow up, Ray? I grew up in Lowell, Mass., but I would say for the first 12 years... Well, let me put it this way. From the first 12 to 13 years, I actually was in Watertown more than I was at home. And there's a reason for that. Tell us what was in Watertown. And the reason for that, of course, is I went to Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I was there 12 years. And did you live there? Of course. You were a resident? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a boarding, was a boarding setup. That's why I was never home. Sometimes I didn't get home except for Easter or Christmas or, of course, summer I got home. Right. You know. Yeah, did you uh, adapt well to that kind of environment right off the bat, or was it difficult yeah, for you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, even when I was little, I was not at home. I actually was at, they called it the baby nursery, for the, and I was like three when I left home. Mm. I mean, I was brought up by other people, let's put it that way. Now, <laughs> in <laughs> Perkins, which I'm very familiar with, we have a lot of friends, mutual friends who have graduated oh, from sure. there over the years. Was Braille the first thing they teach little kids who they, are visually they impaired? They taught Braille in the first grade on. We read the Dick and Jane book. <laughs> so did I. Out, damn spot, out, I say. <laughs> L- let's talk a little bit about the music in your life, because we're going to talk about audio and all the great stuff you've done. Was music something that also uh, began early for you? Very much so, because Perkins, it was almost mandatory to learn Braille music. And because of that, we were able to produce music much better, more accurately. Starting in the fourth grade, we had to learn solfeggio, of course, which is how to read music. Obviously Braille, so uh, if somebody is not yeah, Braille exactly. proficient, one wouldn't know what the heck we're looking at or feeling, but you, you're very proficient at that. I use Braille every day, even now, but I mean, not for music, but it was very important in those days if you learned Braille. Um, and they started us in the fourth grade, 
And by the time we were in, we had music class almost every day, not, well, three days out of the week. We had chorus when I was in high school. Then that's when you started singing the more complicated stuff. In other words, you you better sing your notes. You learn to sing your notes that were written down like you would sheet music. Where does the mandolin come in? Because I know you're a darn good mandolin player. You've played in bands. Well, I'm not darn good at it. But Don't be so modest. It's me. Come on. I just, no, no, <laughs> I just use it. Well, I played mostly some bluegrass with it. You know, I'm, I'm not a great mandolin player. I have a good mandolin, but I mean, uh, I actually taught, was taught bass first. Paul Bargus, who was our music director, he was from Houston. He was my favorite teacher. Well, he even, like, started a ham club for the kids, you know, ham radio. You know, he was just right. a fantastic guy. A lot of his time for us, mm-hmm. but he didn't have to. Well, he taught me the bass, and we had a kid from England who was brought over. He was, went through the Blitz in London. Awesome piano player. I mean, he could even played it when he grew up a little more. Uh, he even played at George Weems Club, Storyville. Oh, yes, right. He was that good. Our teacher got us gigs, and we used to play dances. Well, he was a violinist by trade, so I learned to play bass, acoustic bass, not electric. Well, I can play electric, too, but I actually learned on played the big acoustic bass. And I still love the sound of acoustic bass more than anything, yeah. you know. And that's what I loved about Nashville. They use acoustic bass for years into some of the newer stuff. He taught me how to play the bass. And we used to play dances at some of the some of the schools, you know, even some of the prep schools. What was that and like so, when, when you guys showed up? Were the kids accepting of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we were mostly a trio that did the live gigs. We got seven bucks a night. We were hey, loaded. that's big money in those days. Come on. Yeah, well, now, now did that sort of lead to the career that you had, the sparkling career in audio? What I would say, I would say so. Yeah. Sure. So sure, let, because, let's talk about that because uh, that's how I know you. That's how I've known you for 35, 40 years as a producer and uh, a musicologist and someone who's done some pretty impressive live events that we'll talk about. Well, after I left Perkins, I went to Lowell Tech for a couple of years, uh, special classes, because I wanted to learn radio uh, electronics. I wanted to learn when I plug it in, where does the juice go? (laughs) And so uh, I did learn it. I used to repair amplifiers myself. You know, I used to do that kind of work. I didn't care to repair stuff. I I got tired of that. Which brings me to a a very interesting observation about this man. I'm talking with Ray Fournier. You have uh, utilized, like so many people who are without sight or without a particular sense, utilized your other senses. It kind of makes sense that you are in the field that you're in. Would you agree? Because sound is everything to you? Well, I ran my studio. I really got out when I went to work for Bill Hanley. And that was 1963. Tell everybody who Bill was, just so we have a picture. Bill Hanley to me, was the best audio on-the-road sound engineer I ever worked with, and I've seen them all. We even got help, you know, or learn from uh, Bo Brannick and Newman. They, they, they teach at MIT, and they, like, design auditoriums, you know, known auditoriums around the country. 
And so that was a good thing to learn because, you know, every room is different. Mm-hmm. I remember we did uh, at BC in their hockey rink, which is nothing but a cave because yeah. it's all cement. Of course. So you had to know what, where to put gear, how to equalize it, how to make it work so that everybody can hear it. As Bill said, you want the best seat in the house to hear it. Yeah. Or the worst seat. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because uh, we don't have you know the opportunity to talk about all the big gigs, but let's talk about a few of them. No. This was in the 60s when you were doing, let me just name drop, Woodstock and the Beatles yeah. and things like this. The equipment today is so far advanced, but you guys made it work. Oh. Can you share a little bit of those uh, stories? The speakers were humongous. <laughs> Each cabinet had two 15-inch speakers in it, and it was a good six feet tall, the cabinet. Then it had the tweeter, which were horns, sit on top of it. And trucking that stuff around was very hard. And then you were fighting all kinds of weird things. I remember when we when we got to Chicago with part of the Beatle tour, we figured, hey, good, we got here early. We'll unload the stuff. So we won't have to do it. Well, guess what? The union got mad at us. We had to put them back on the truck so they could unload it. That just makes your whole day when that happens, I bet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but so, But how do you do sound in the 60s for the Beatles when the girls, and mostly girls, are screaming at a high decibel well, level? You well, managed to pull like, it off. Well, like Bill said, we didn't. We thought we had enough noise. We, we could have made it louder. He just didn't think that it, it would go to that level. We could have brought more gear. You could have packed it in even more, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was the Woodstock experience like for you? I mean, you experienced it. You were there. You ran sound for much of it. What was it like? Well, not. I didn't do all of it because I actually was only there part of the time because we were doing the Beach Boys at the same time. So I was not there the whole time. Well, that I means you got a chance it. to take a shower, which is a good thing. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the mud. Sure, sure, sure. But these are historic uh, moments. Uh, Have there been performers, whether they be soloists or groups, who have been especially picky that they, you know, this greatest sound system as you set up with Bill, they just can't work with it or whatever, or most people pretty adaptable? Uh, What's his name from the dead? He was very fussy about sound. Jerry? Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. He he was crazy. Which is interesting, Uh, considering he was so high all the time. (laughs) Yeah. But we've also done, you know, we did the Mormon Tabernacle Choir several times. Wow. So there's the opposite. And I remember we did the we did the uh, shell one time, but our client was WBZ. You're talking about the hat shell on the Esplanade the on the Charles shell. River. Now, yes, right, right. Bill didn't get his gear out fast enough, and boy, was, was Arthur mad at us. Arthur Fiedler, <laughs> yeah. So when you're, when you're dealing with, it's not just the speakers and the amplifiers, it's microphones too, isn't it, Ray? Yeah, well, Bill was the first one to use a lot of microphones. A lot of people that were doing sound before that, you know, it, hey, all we need three or four, sit in front of the band, and that's how they did it, but it was horrible. You can't get a good mix, no. right? That's No, it's impossible to get a mix. So Bill was really the first guy to tight mic, I would call it. Mike each section, Mike each, you know, where you needed it. Like a good example is like the 1938 Benny Goodman jazz, you know, at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. That was one mic. That whole thing. 
Right, and a great jazz record. You weren't there, by the way. Well, it's not to suggest no, that you were. Well, I was alive. You were you were on the planet, but you weren't doing yeah. sound for Benny. Nah, <clears throat> nah, nah, you know, at four years old. I yeah, did. yeah. Now uh, <laughs> let's talk about Boston because you and I have some great colleagues and friends over the years, and one of our oh. one of our dearest, and you were very close to him, was a cowboy star locally called Rex Trailer. You want to share a few oh, thoughts? Oh, I worked with him a lot. I worked with Rex quite a few years. We we shared the same real estate, so to speak. We shared the same office. That worked out good for me. But as like anything else, the rents, the landlords get greedy, and they wouldn't double of what we were paying. So Rex moved to Waltham, and I moved to Watertown. Actually, you moved in with me for a while, if you recall. Yes, I did. (laughs) We had a lot of laughs back then. It was a great, great time. Oh, my goodness. You guys were so patient with me, I'll tell you. We're talking about uh, Ray and I having worked in the same uh, industry for a long time. I've done a lot of voice work for Ray. Ray's produced for all kinds of clients. Uh, You really had a good thing, a good niche going for a lot of years with Diamond Tape. Oh, yeah. We did a lot of interesting people. Well, I I worked in New York mostly because of Hanley because we had an office down there. But I could do some independent stuff, so I worked at one studio, and I had a chance to work with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, Mr. And, Spock, how cool is that? Yeah. Well, he was from Boston. That's right, the the West End, yeah. His father was a barber. Leonard Nimoy and my father knew each other in Dorchester growing up and wow. actually uh, appeared on a couple of stages together, and my dad went on to become a business oh, guy, yeah. and Leonard went on to become a superstar, so there you go. And we had a lot of friends like Sue Bennett. You know, she was fun to work with. Oh, she yeah. was great. But doing the jingles, I'd like to get to that because these kids deserve, these guys deserve. Yeah, let's talk jingles, man, because we got some good, good collaboration. Well, we did the there. original Dunkin' Donut jingle. <laughs> Do you remember how that went? Uh, yeah, but too bad I could have played it if I had it. Andy, yeah, I went Dunkin' Donuts. So nice. I can't sing anymore. Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, 52 varieties, Calderman C. <laughs> We're the shop around the corner from wherever you may be. Light, so light. Dunkin' Donuts for the family. <laughs> the world still runs on Dunkin', Ray. That was the jingle. Jingles were, were so popular. This was the 60s and 70s, right? Oh, don't play me on the air. I sound awful. No, no, no. You sound fine. <laughs> But but jingles jingles aren't done as much as they used to be. And what was the secret to a good jingle, Ray? That other people can hum it and remember it. Yeah, becomes an think, an, an ear. Think about it. Yeah, an know? earworm. Yes, yeah, it stays yeah. in your head, right? Exactly. And and can we mention another wonderful friend of ours, the sweetest guy and one of the most talented, JD? Oh, John Aldridge. He's incredible. I talked to him the other day. I learned a lot from him, too, even though I would have done them before I knew him, you know. But, you know, the thing is, too, I used to visit. I, I owe a lot to Berkeley School, too, School of Music, or whatever, college now. Mm-hmm. I used to go over when they were on Newbury Street, and there was Larry Burke and then Bob Share. You know, I was just a kid, you know, getting interested, and I went over there. They'd have me come into his office, and and we sit and talk. I mean, he he actually spent time with me, and the guy was busy, I'm sure, but they were just wonderful people. And they gave me some work. I did 
I did some big band stuff in my studio. Yeah, we could handle, uh, you know, people like uh, Gary Burton. I remember recording him when he was 18. Wow. You know, people like that. Here's what I'll say about that. And I'm and d- just blush a little bit on the phone if you okay. want. Ray is not only one of the top audio guys ever in this industry, in this city and around the Northeast, but he's actually one of the funniest and most delightful guys to know as a friend. And I think, you know, in this business, at least back then when it wasn't so technically digital and and remote, uh, it was about friendship. It was about relying on pals to get the job done and working with good people. And you uh, you epitomize that. So little tip of the hat. You know, other blind people ask me, you know, how, do, how did you get in it? How did I, you know, could I do it? And I said, well, you can, but... The only way you're going to learn it nowadays is to learn computer skills. Right, right. Because things are not the same anymore. When I master something, I do it on the computer. Of course, of course. We, uh, As I sit here, Ray, in my digital studio, it's all digital, no analog, although there is a tape deck in the corner, just for old time's sake. But yeah, everything changed in our lifetime radically. But what's necessary, and I'll just end with this, and you are an exemplar of this as well, is creative talent. And uh, you did want to talk a little bit about the young singers you worked with and the jingle people. Yeah. Well, I mean, we had, of course, it mentions in that book that Fred Taylor was a good friend of mine. Yes, he was a jazz impresario here in Boston. Uh, His book is... I just sent Ray the book as uh, my gift. And what's it called again? Uh, if What and Give Up Show Business? By what Fred Give Taylor. Up Show Business? <laughs> By Freddie Taylor. Go ahead. What, what does he say in the book? Where was I? <laughs> no, we were saying what he quoted in the book about you and the people you hung oh, around. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I mean, Fred used to hang out at my studio years ago. I had My studio was in Porter Square on Mass Ave. In Cambridge. You know, I cut a lot of the players that you know, that became famous, you know, from Berkeley. We've also done live concerts. You know, we, Eric Clapton, you know, we did them, you know, we did sound for them at, at BC. And I mentioned, you know, how hard it was to do some rooms because that was, I got to meet him. For one reason, he blew his amplifier. We had to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something so, that goes wrong on the road. Absolutely. Always something oh, that yeah. can go wrong with oh, sound. Oh, sure. I didn't care for the road, though. I mean, I did. I I was going to go on the last Joplin tour, but I didn't make. Uh, there was things going on. I didn't just have it. just to be clear, that's Janice, not Scott. The Janice Bragdon. Joplin, right, right. And well, I met her in Philly. She was performing it at a club called Love, something like that. Well, she offered me a swig out of her Jack Daniels. I mean, wow. I mean, you know, that's. I thought that was very. Kind of a... Very sweet, very sweet indeed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to ask if you did partake, but that's okay. That's for another time. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ray, uh, we're going to close up, but I really want to thank you for sharing a few of your stories and for giving me the opportunity to salute you because you've been a friend for life and will always be a friend in my heart and uh, such a delightful oh, chap. Me too. I, I don't mind, you know, if anyone, you know, asks me to help them, I do. And you guys, you and Kenny been very, very good to me, and you put up with me. Uh, well, we put uh, up with uh, you, even though you have the greatest dad jokes of all time. When I say that, I mean <laughs> Ray's jokes and my jokes are on a par, let's just say it that way. So you're, an, well, you're a good match for me, my friend. You know, and I worked with a lot. Well, the other thing I did do 
is we I worked in the village with Bill, so we would do the they'll have a contract for most of the clubs there. You know, the sound contract, you know, like oh the bitter end, you know. So Lenny Bruce, that. people like that? So we used to do sound for them. Well, what advice would you have for somebody wanting to get into the audio world today? Let's close with that. Well, the thing is now, I'll tell you one thing that's happened, is the reason I say they better learn computer skills is because nothing has knobs anymore. Everything is touch. Exactly. Like, I got to be careful what kind of a keyboard I buy because it's touch screen. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's an impediment for somebody who's not visually adept. How the heck is adept. that going to help me? <laughs> I know, and I'm I. We both came up in the analog world where tactile. That's right. Sense was That's so right. important, even though I'm sighted. Of course, I I feel better when I can control a potentiometer, which is a a control I, I for do, volume. I agree with you. Yeah, because it just feels like it gets away from you. So I still have a good old big console here. I can do twenty four track here. If I want to. A good thing to have in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But see, now now you can use Audacity. There's some nice computer programs that don't cost money, you know, do good good work with, you know. And then there's Pro Tools, you know. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. They and, have all those. And stuff. you're right. It's, it's kids coming up who are already very well-equipped to handle computers, so... It's a different generation, yep. but the one thing they need to have is a good ear, and there's nobody with a oh, better set of ears. Go. Nobody with a better set of ears than this guy, Ray Fournier. They didn't know I had three ears. I did. I love the guy, Ray Fournier. Had a company for years called Diamond Tape. Talk to anybody in the audio sound business from the '60s on, and they'll tell you the same thing. Ray is not only one heck of a guy; he's one of the most talented sound engineers ever. Find out more about this podcast. Go to jordanrich.com. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing as we just continue to move on from 400 to infinity and beyond. Until next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.